Climate law matters. What does the precautionary principle mean to a scientist? Part two. Interview with Dr. Alex Lee, chartered geologist and scientist. Hello, listener, and welcome back to our podcast, Climate Law Matters, in which we explore the legal developments across different sectors to address the key issue of climate change. I am Steph David, a barrister at 39 Ethics Chambers, specialising in environmental and climate change cases. Today, I continue my fantastic discussion with Dr. Alex Lee, who leads the environmental and climate change team at HKA. So, Alex, welcome back. I'm looking forward to carrying on our discussion of precautionary principle. Thank you for the invite. So, Alex, last time we discussed the precautionary principle as it applies to certain areas of your work, particularly thinking about complex environmental decision making and climate modelling. I think it'd be useful for our listener if we can dive into a practical example in a bit more detail. So, can you give such an example in, in the climate change context? Absolutely. Let's take UK landfill as a practical example. So, landfill have potential vulnerabilities to their cover systems, cover systems being protective capping. And these are vulnerable to climate change. Clay caps, along with overlying soils, are potentially vulnerable to increased desiccation and fishery, resulting in an increased rates of rainfall infiltration into a landfill and therefore increased contaminant washout, in other words, the potential for discharge. So what's desiccation and fissuring? So landfill basically are engineered structures which have caps on them. And these caps are composed of clay layers and geotechnical membranes or geomembranes. And the objective of those membranes, amongst many other reasons, is to protect them from rainwater infiltration. Rainwater that passes through the landfill can effectively wash out contaminants and then discharge them and carry them further into the environment. Desiccation and fissuring can occur where effectively big large cracks, at the simplest definition, large cracks occur. And those cracks occur, for example, due to drying out and or erosion. So for example, last year, with the hot summer we had in the south of England, Cracks started to appear in newly built landfills that were several metres deep. These were newly constructed landfills. They simply started to dry out and essentially water could then ingress and start to wash out contamination. I see. That makes sense. Landfills are also increased and these cover systems are also increased potential for erosion because under extreme weather conditions, we're going to start seeing potential for erosion and washout, which may expose the membranes and also expose the waste also below the membranes and the cover systems. These and other factors, along with the potential for increased rainfall, will ultimately or potentially result in increased rainfall, leading to the potential future increase in an authorised discharge of contaminants into the wider environment. In England, Brand in 2017 has also identified some 1,200 historic landfills at coastal locations around the UK. They identified that if not adequately protected and without intervention, and around 122 of these landfills could start to erode by 2055 due to the results of climate change and therefore discharge their contents, in other words, distribute waste and chemicals along our coastlines. However, there's very limited funding opportunities to support shoreline protection in the UK. But since solid wastes are also likely to be persistent into the environment, the presence of such waste in the coastal zone could be argued as both as a long-term and serious problem. So we know why... But when and how this may occur, and fundamentally to what extent do we intervene, is a big question. If we took the coastal erosion question alone, excellent tools are available for flood modelling. But in coastal situations, the situation is often complicated by dependence on local conditions. 
There are also considerable uncertainties in both the scale of the climatic drivers of change and how sensitive eroding coastal sites prove to be. National scale maps of future erosion do exist for the next 100 years, but the basis of these maps is poorly documented. The Environment Agency, has, as a result, has been updating its National Coastal Erosion Risk Maps for England and Wales. A new dataset named Geocoast now offers information on coastal flooding and physical properties relevant to coastal erosion. But the number of tools for the quantification of coastal sensitivity to climate change remains limited, and most of these have been developed from a single conceptualization of shoreline and shore erosion behaviour. Worst-case climate projections do not also necessarily produce the worst-case effect for all metrics that might be regulated under climate change adaptation. Site-dependent data sets support risk assessments are also typically based on old projections of climate change. In fact, I've seen people producing climate change risk assessments now based upon climate change models dating back to 2009 and before. This is because it takes several years for national climate projections to be modelled using the IPCC climate model scenarios, and it takes even longer for assessment-ready datasets to be modelled for their national climate projections. So, given the taste of the uncertainty that I've described, the question is, does the principle dictate that uncertainty demands action, or does uncertainty justify inaction? Action will cost significant time, it will cost significant money. Together with site-specific studies to give the fullest possible understanding of uncertainty and scenario models at any given location. What I've seen is both action in and inaction arising in the face of such uncertainty. I cannot share specific details, but by this example you can clearly see how complicated and how onerous the problem can become if we were to invoke the precaution principle. You also have to consider that the environmental benefits of any intervention must also not outweigh the sustainability costs of that intervention. For example, pouring lots of concrete to protect a coastal location will have its own environmental costs. Yeah, absolutely. It's a constant, as you say, balancing of risk and harm, isn't it, when it comes down to it? I'm curious, have you been involved in any case where you see the precautionary principle make a real difference to the outcome of that case? I've recently been involved in investor-state disputes involving arguments over relative emission contributions from proposed new energy infrastructure. I can't share the content of such disputes, but can say they've typically arisen due to the delivery of incomplete risk analysis, creating a bias in favour of taking chances on poorly misunderstood emissions. The proponents of risk have typically looked to argue that proposed climate contributions are insignificant relative to global emissions, and hence they're nothing to worry about. In other words, we can keep on polluting our emissions or even increase our emissions because they're negligible relative to, to global contributions. But I would say that further analysis of proposed contributions relative to national determined contributions under the Paris Agreement would on occasion, not always, find them as otherwise. Arguably, the fullest scientific possible evaluation has often been lacking in these cases in explaining why they should be considered acceptable or negligible and how they should be mitigated or even reduced. I also know that Article 3 of the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change states that parties should take precautionary measures to anticipate, to prevent, and or minimise the causes of climate change and mitigate its adverse effects. A reasonable interpretation of this sentence would be to simply to support an action for climate change by reducing and offsetting emissions of greenhouse gases. In other words, it's a call for action. The outcomes are still to be decided in these cases, yet the imposition of the precautionary principle against cost-benefit will be a central tenant in all these cases.
Yeah, that makes sense. So watch this space and see how they pan out. Absolutely. In our last discussion, you raised some concerns in respect of how you go about defining the precautionary principle and the difficulties that can result in across different sectors. I think it'd be really helpful if we kind of drill down into that in a bit more detail. I mean, what are your particular concerns about defining the principle? We can only go so far with scientific argument. We end up with a, a situation where it's all about risk perception. And risk perception, how we define terms, which is irreversible, plausible, and serious, varies throughout society. They're subject to bias, conscious, subconscious distortions of judgments because of self-interest, social pressures, or even organizational context. Such amplifies the reporting of the scientific uncertainty contained in our understanding of climate change and how it's downscaled and the impacts it may have on a particular development or infrastructure. The why should the precaution principle not be invoked, for example, can be subject to overconfidence bias, preventing problem holders and decision makers from considering extreme scenarios. For example, it's been found from the limited assessments performed in the UK, climate adaptation, that have often been based on a cautiously realistic central projection of climate change as a reference case and have on occasion included other projections, but only to explore uncertainty. Assessors have not often or not commonly tried to unrealistically or realistically combine the worst case effects of the different climate scenarios. Instead, they've based on the overconfidence that this is just not going to happen. They've assumed that the worst case scenarios are not going to affect them. Similarly, what we see basically is a myopic understanding of the problem. This occurs when we have an oversimplified representation of the system under study and results in a complete incomplete understanding. For example, we often see sites where the problem holders fail to identify or understand the vulnerabilities that his site is subject to and the time scales and the magnitude of those vulnerabilities and when they may occur. Conversely, we've also seen a desirability bias for positive consequence arising from a problem holder's desirability to be overly cautious or prudent. And in other words, to make conservative estimates related to harmful consequences. We often see this coming from society and the regulator. In other words, what we see is because the perceived risk is so high, then what we will do, we will just immediately adopt cautionary principle without thought in a degree as well as arbitrarily. So to reduce such bias in decisions, most can be dealt with by the use of multiple experts and alternative points of view, or by the use of decomposition. And sorry, what exactly is decomposition? Decomposition is basically simply breaking an argument down into its component pieces. It's a descriptive narrative in our reports of how do we get from point A to point B, the logic behind the argument, the evidence. It's very similar to basically producing a probative argument in terms of what are the facts, how much credibility can we place on those facts, and what is the weight of those facts. So in other words, we have a logical, clear, transparent argument. But we should also be cross-checking any judgments with alternative scenarios. And we should also be asking for extreme and unusual scenarios, both low and high, and avoiding central tendency anchors. In other words, the tendency to simply go in the middle somewhere, which is often what happens in the UK. All of this, however, requires a proactive leadership, plus early but proportionate cost considerations. In other words, we should be spending money early to gather the facts, the weight of facts, and then developing a systematic framework for then leading an informed discussion. And coming back to kind of the purpose of this discussion, I mean, what impact do these issues have on the approach adopted by experts and scientists? I mean, you've touched upon it in respect of how 
the biases are addressed, but just interested to hear your view on that point. Well, the problem arises principally that we can spend an awful lot of time and money acquiring information on scientific uncertainty. But fundamentally, we end up with situations where when we have complex issues, we end up with multiple metrics and we end up with multiple options. And fundamentally, in those circumstances, there may be no objective way of selecting between the best option because the preferred option will depend on the relative weight the stakeholders assigned to the various metrics. Furthermore, there's no guarantee that the stakeholders will even agree on those weights. So although various decision-making tools have been developed to weigh stakeholders in selecting between options, cost-benefit analysis, ranking analysis, multi-attribute analysis, Bayesian techniques, etc., these can only be tools for thought and for stimulating informed debate amongst the stakeholder groups. Consistency in the UK to a systematic approach to such is often too often lacking, but it is improving. There has been and will be an increased need for stakeholder consultation when addressing full life cycle environmental implications of complex climate and environmental issues. Meanwhile, also, common elements do already exist in existing approaches and include advocating a risk-based and proportionate process, culminating in adaptive management and ongoing reviews. Depending on the regulatory regime understudy, frameworks for the inclusion of climate change also already exist. Let's not forget that. We have EIA, we have best practical management, best practical environmental options, etc. Consequently, the focus not, should not always be on reinvention, but rather simply on orchestrating change, marketing, increasingly marketing, should I say, the expectation of its urgent inclusion in any assessments, but also in making sure that we have stakeholder weighting and stakeholder consultation as an important component of the final evaluation. So it's an extremely complex and iterative process, isn't it, when it comes down to it? Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. And it shouldn't be taken lightly. And so I know you've touched already upon guidance from the EU and also guidance coming out of the Environment Act, but are there any other bodies that have produced helpful guidance? There is, yeah. To provide clarity in the UK, the Regulatory Policy Committee in 2020 produced a guidance so-called Using the Cautioning Principle. This is directed to aid policymakers and analysts with a tool presenting the evidence that will be relevant to a department's application of the precautionary principle and appropriate to their specific circumstances. I'd also note the Scottish Government and the EU have widely published on the role of the precautionary principle in law and policy. And just to remind the listener, who is the Regulatory Policy Committee? Ah, the RPC is an independent regulatory scrutiny body for the UK government. The committee assesses the quality of evidence and analysis used to inform government regulatory proposals. They expect to see a thorough assessment of a decision that invokes the precaution principle and seeks a commitment to review and monitor. It's been delivered in support of the Green Book. For those who don't know, the Green Book's guidance issued by UKHM Treasury on how to appraise policies, programmes and projects. And so how does the committee approach the definition of the precautionary principle? In answer, very briefly, the RPC does not actually offer law or policy, but only an expectation of reporting structure when reporting decision-making. The RPC does not actually tell us how to evaluate the uncertainties and how to consider weighting and to evaluate an actual decision. They do, however, make it clear the precautionary principle is narrower and just being precautionary it is only relevant where scientific uncertainty is a key factor and there is good reason to expect a harmful effect. They have invoked a four-stage structured approach when assessing the robustness of a decision. The EU has got a similar four-stage approach. The four stages include stage one, documenting evidence of harmful effects. 
there should be good reason to believe the harm should occur. Stage two, documenting irreversible harmful effects, gauged with reference to severity, irreversibility, numbers affected, uniqueness, temporal and spatial variability, and any knock-on effects. Then stage three is about documenting the level of scientific uncertainty. And then stage four is the review. But from a site holder's perspective, the precautionary principle is still struggling due to inconsistent application and approach and a lack of direction. This is a procedure that's been offered by the RPC. It doesn't actually tell you how to do it. Yet also, systems for identifying how to assess climate vulnerabilities do exist. They're just not necessarily widely shared. A tiered framework for assessing both stage one, stage two, and stage three, and then also I would argue stage four of the RPC document can be found within the nuclear sector and can be used as a starting point for the identification and development of scenarios, conceptual models, for identifying the vulnerabilities of sites to climate change, can be used to supply an audit check for the completeness of scenarios, but also to identify how uncertainty should be best managed, expressed, and then discussions advanced. So essentially, we have learning lessons out there and I would draw people's attention to the nuclear sector. Incredibly helpful and ties in nicely to my next question, which is, so given the ambiguity in dividing the principle, the difficulties in applying the approach, are there other avenues for essentially achieving the same objective? In 2020, the EA published its EA 2025 Corporate Strategy and Priorities. A central aim of this is to be a leader in the delivery of climate adaptation and resilience. Adaptation to climate change protection in the environment, together with the aspiration of reducing intergenerational burden, would appear to be a burning prerogative in the UK. A central theme must therefore be to ensure that new operations and new infrastructure are designed so they are resilient to adverse climate change and to reduce contributions. We can see in section 14 of the National Planning Policy Framework, we have paragraphs 152 to 173. If I take an example, I note that paragraph 152 notes the planning system should support the transition to a low carbon future in a changing climate, taking full account of flood risks, coastal change, etc. Paraphrasing from paragraph 153, then plans should also be proactive to mitigating and adapting to climate change. So there is a vehicle there via the planning process. In terms of existing regulated industry though, and when looking to surrender sites, and such will increasingly also be expected to make a safe state for future generations. Risk-based engineering, and I use an example only, as required by the Landfill Directive, also provides an opportunity to address climate change effects. Furthermore, in the future, I'm being optimistic here, in England we may also have the Wellbeing in Future Generations Bill. This is a private members bill introduced by Lord Bird, inspired by legislation passed in Wales in 2015. It aims to ensure UK policymaking counts for the interests of future generations. It includes the importance of balancing short-term needs and the need to safeguard the ability to meet our long-term needs and protect future generations. However, what we have is a knowing doing gap currently between policy and the tools needed to deliver consistently. What do you see as the greatest legal barrier or development to the use or adoption of the precautionary principle as a helpful tool for positive change? Okay, this is a matter of scale. So the first question is, on a global scale, the greatest legal barrier is developing a universally accepted definition of the principle. The principle's interpretation varies by country, making it difficult to apply in practice at the international level. But to reflect again, the precautionary principle at its heart is nothing more than a call for an evidence-based approach. 
the burden being on the problem holder to supply probative argument and sufficient weight and credibility for it to be admissible. Its findings should be considered holistically and proportionally and will always be cited problem-specific. On a more regional and I suppose project-specific basis, the greatest barrier basically is about risk perception and its potential for inconsistent application or reckless abuse due to a broader negative outlook that has sometimes created a fear undermining confidence in its application. Yet numerous developments advice on the precaution principle exist. Also, frameworks for the inclusion of climate change already exist, for example, the EIA process, or if I reflect again, already exists, for example, in the nuclear sector. Come differences in risk perception, stakeholder consultations, good examples, and agreement to a systematic approach on how to score and weight uncertainties exist, will arise, and continue to develop. And that focus needs to be on inconsistency. Yes, well, I mean, certainly going back to the EIA point, we'll wait to see what the Supreme Court says in the case of Finch <laughs> in respect of how far that regime can actually deal with climate change risk. Thank you very much for your input today, Alex. It's been incredibly insightful. So thank you very much.